Hey, everybody got a great show for you today. Sourcegraph CEO Quinn Slack, who is building Google for code search is on the program. What a great company. They've uh, become a unicorn raised money from the best investors in Silicon Valley. It's a great story. We talk about SaaS pricing and a bunch of other interesting topics. He's a good guest. Uh, but first, I want to follow up on some stories we covered earlier in the week. Uh, head of Instagram, Adam Osari, made some comments comparing social media to the car industry in terms of harm done and the value of cars in a recent podcast appearance. So I'm going to break down that comparison. I think it's actually not a bad one. And tons more drama in the NFT space. Jay-Z is suing his Rockefeller Records co-founder, Dame Dash, who's trying to sell NFTs. Jay-Z already sold his NFTs, yada, yada. Um, and um we talk a little bit about OpenSea and the issues they faced uh there's an update on their employee who was front running the market or doing insider trading however we want to talk about it uh, stick with us great episode this week in startups is brought to you by zendesk qualifying startups can join the zendesk for startups program and get six free months of zendesk products you'll also get access to an exclusive community of startups for advice and connections Visit Zendesk.com slash twist today to get started. Lemon.io. Need to speed up your product development without draining your budget? Hire vetted engineers from Europe at Lemon.io. Go to Lemon.io slash twist to get 15% off for the first four weeks. And Marketer Hire. Need expert marketing help fast? Hire vetted marketing specialists this week from the company that's already used by Netflix, Allbirds, and more. Get $500 off your first hire at marketerhire.com slash twist and use code twist. Okay, the head of Instagram, Adam Mosari, is facing backlash for comments he made on the Recode Media podcast, an excellent podcast with Pierre Kafka. I've been on it once or twice. He basically compares social media and the dangers of it to the car industry. Let's listen to a 70 second clip and I'll give you my feedback after. As head of Instagram, do you feel like the product should not be available to certain kinds of people? I mean, if, if this is something that, gen that genuinely could make, and you don't know yet, right? You're, that's you're saying we don't, we don't, we're not fully confident in the research. But if there's a chance that this is a product that could really harm people in the same way that you know, cigarettes could harm people, that you guys should be restricting it or maybe taking it off the market? Absolutely not. I, and I really don't agree with the comparison to drugs or cigarettes, which have very limited, if any, upsides. I think that Anything that is going to be used at scale is going to have positive and negative outcomes. Cars have positive and negative outcomes. We understand that. We know that more people die than would otherwise because of car accidents. But by and large, it cre cars create way more value in the world than they destroy. And I think social media is similar. I think that we do a ton to help people connect with those that they love. We've helped advance a number of important social causes particularly Me Too and Black Lives Matter. We help small businesses make a living. We help creators find ways to express themselves. There's a bunch of them. We give voice to those who have been historically marginalized. There's a ton of value that we create. And But yes, of course, there are also issues as well. All right, they have it, folks. So, you know, that quote, in case you missed it, we know that more people die than would otherwise because of car accidents. But by and large, cars create way more value in the world than they destroy. And I think social media is similar. I mean, it's fine. I think using analogies is how we figure out how new things impact us. A couple things to think about with cars. Um, cars go through a lot of regulatory uh, testing and have massive amounts of regulation. In the beginning, they had none because they were new. And then they went through massive, massive regulation. And 
there was many actions taken against the car industry because they knew that airbags and seatbelts and three-point harnesses would have absolutely saved more lives. And they kind of took their time in adding those because they added a lot of cost to the car and a lot being, you know, uh, hundreds of dollars uh, and it would have saved millions of lives or probably hundreds of thousands of lives over the years since 30,000 people a year, I believe is the number die in car accidents. And there is a minimum age for driving and people take um, uh, driving lessons and they get a driver's license. So if Mosari is a fan of this, great, uh, great metaphor. How about kids have to take a course, pass a test, uh, and they get a social media license if they want to use social media before the age of 18 or 17 or whatever it is. If we know that, um, you know, and it's proven that this causes, uh, you know, anxiety, depression, et cetera, in one third of uh, teen girls, well, then maybe they should take a course before they get on it. That seems completely reasonable to me. It seems like the social media, the downside to social media might be actually more than the downside to driving. So great analogy, Masari. Yeah, let's regulate uh, social media for kids exactly the same way cars are, which is don't let them use it, right? Kids are not allowed to use social media until they hit the age of 16. And there are situations they're allowed to use it in. They're sometimes not allowed to go on the highway, right? You get a learner's permit. You're allowed to use it. But during the daylight, you have to have a, a driver with you. I like that analogy as well. What if to use social media, your parent had to be, you know, uh, or your guardian had to be on the side right next to you. In other words, they had access to the account. They saw what you posted. Maybe they approve what you post. They could easily build that into Instagram. How about a tool where with Instagram, you add who your parent or guardian is, Masari, and that person then sees all of your interactions, everything you posted and everybody you followed. And they would give you the ability to approve like I do on my iPhone. I will approve the apps my daughters want to add. They request it with parental controls. I edit. So let's put parental controls on Instagram, where if somebody wants to post, and they're an underage person, they're, you know, I guess 13 is the starting age. But let's say anybody who's, you know, a teenager, not 18 yet, their parents have to approve their post before they post it. Easy to do, right? Uh, so I think uh, metaphors are helpful. And I, I actually kind of like this one. Um, why not highly regulate uh, social media for kids? It makes total sense. US News published an article in February about the impact of social media on teen girls mental health. Here's a quote from that article. We found that girls who started using social media at two to three hours a day or more at age 13, and then increased that use over time had the highest levels of suicide risk in emerging adulthoods. Said the study author, Sarah Coyne, she is an associate director of the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Suicide rates of 100,000 people in America have risen steadily uh, since social media took off in the late 2000s. Uh, so if you look, we would have 11. Um, if you look at this chart, suicide rates, you know, uh, 10.8, 11, 10.9, up until 2006. And from 2006, uh, we had straight up growth in the number of suicides uh, in the United States. That correlates exactly when Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram all became super popular. Is that the correlation? Is it opioids? Is it something else? Who knows? But it's definitely something that is so obvious to anybody who's a parent or anybody who's used social media, that social media is not something children should use. It's obvious to every parent. Parents give into it. I understand it's really hard if the other kids in the class have phones, they have TikTok, it's hard to police. You don't have unlimited time. We've all got to work and have other obligations as parents. But this is where Musari needs to take more ownership. Uh, and I would, the idea is here, they were covering up this information about, uh, you know, these results. At the same time, 
that they were proposing Instagram for kids. So this is absolutely crazy. Um, I don't know if I like the cigarette analogy um, as much as I like the car analogy. So uh, another quick update uh, on this Facebook fallout after the Wall Street Journal article published on Tuesday, the following happened. Three Democrats from both houses of Congress sent a letter to Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg asking for answers like, quote, please provide copies of all external research Facebook has commissioned or otherwise accessed regarding the mental health of your children and teen users. Uh, here's another quote, please provide copies of all internal research Facebook has conducted regarding the mental health of your children and teen users. And third, and finally, a quote, will Facebook agree to abandon its plans to launch any new platforms for children or teens, including versions of Instagram for children? If not, why not? So you're going to see a lot more uh, legal investigations. And I think Facebook, uh, you know, we should, our expectation is Facebook cares more about growth and revenue than they do our children. You should not trust Facebook with your information and you should not trust them with your children. Uh, and certainly you should not trust the Chinese Communist Party uh, and let your kids use TikTok. My best advice to you as a parent, and I'm not saying this in a preachy way, is no social media till 16 or 17. That's going to be our plan in our household. And I understand not everybody has the resources I have, or maybe there's a, you're a single parent and you don't have the time to monitor everything. There are apps now that'll let you monitor, like RPAC, I think is one, where you can put this on your kid's phone or iPad and you can watch their usage see what URLs they open, uh, see what instant messages and, and what they do, how much time they spend in each app, and in fact, to block them from certain apps. Um, and of course, none of this is perfect. And I respect your right to choose as a parent what you think is the best. But my Lord, um, do some research on this because and if you know anybody who lets unbridled access to their kids, I think parents need to sort of team up on this. Because if you have three or four kids in a group who are allowed to use TikTok and four or five who are not, we all know what's going to happen. They're all going to share the TikTok and you know, probably something they could handle at 16, 17, 18 years old, something like that. But I think we all know at 10, 11, 12, 13, it's probably not something they should be doing. So it takes a village. Uh, and how do you sleep at night, Facebook executives? I hope the money was worth it because you're all going <laughs> to regret it when you get to the pearly gates. Zendesk is the go-to tool for customer support. We all know that. They also offer a suite of tools designed to remove the difficulties of sales software. So get Zendesk suite of sales tools plus their industry leading support software for free for six months as part of Zendesk for startups. I'll show you how to do that in just a moment. But I want you to know that you'll also get access to Zendesk's community of startup founders and partners, and they'll even offer dedicated onboarding guidance and support. You know, Steezy Studios, it's one of our portfolio companies, and they sell software to learn how to dance. Hundreds of thousands of people are using that software, and they want to make sure everybody has a great experience with the software, obviously. So through a combination of Zendesk Explorer and their ticket tagging system, Steezy is able to track which features their users are most excited about and then relay that to the product team. So they're using customer support to make the product better. So for Steezy, Zendesk creates a positive relationship with their members and empowers them to contribute to Steezy's growth in return for some awesome dance moves. Get six months of Zendesk for startups free at zendesk.com slash twist. To qualify, you must have under 50 employees. That's reasonable. And you must have raised a Series A or below and be a new Zendesk customer. A couple of conditions there because they're giving you something really valuable for free. Six months of Zendesk for startups. Start building the best customer experiences at 
zendesk.com slash list. Okay, OpenSea, the NFT platform, uh, the marketplace uh, has given an update <clears throat> about the insider trading, uh, front running, however we want to frame uh, this behavior. OpenSea updated the original blog post. We covered this on Wednesday show, announcing that an employee who was involved uh, in insider trading uh, of NFTs has resigned. Here's the quote from the blog. We have a strong obligation to this community to move for move it forward responsibly and diligently. Okay, that's a you know uh, a nothing sentence. Uh, the behavior of one of our employees violated that obligation. Okay, they're admitting that this occurred, and yesterday we requested and accepted his resignation. Uh, that would be the lowest form of sanction. Um, is that you accepted their resignation? I'm kind of disappointed by that. Here's another quote: We do not take this behavior lightly. <laughs> if you're just accepting his resignation, I think you do. Um, Upon learning of this conduct, we immediately commissioned a third party to conduct a thorough review of the incident and make recommendations on how we can strengthen our existing controls. That review is ongoing, but we are committed quickly implementing its recommendations. So that quote is a standard uh, PR tactic. We hired an outside investigator. Here's how it actually works, because I've been involved in this before. You hire this outside investigator. Those investigators, who do they report to? Who pays their bill? Okay. <laughs> OpenSea pays their bill. They report to the CEO and the board of uh, OpenSea. Those shareholders <laughs> are uh, can take that report and throw it away if they don't agree with it. They don't have to act on it. They can create a second report. They can do whatever they want with these reports. The fact is, what this person did was really dirty, and it really is going to tarnish uh, the entire space. Because if one person did this, I'm almost certain 10 other people did. Um, and so the actual response should be, we are going to pursue legal action against this employee. Um, you probably should if uh, you are a trading platform and somebody is screwing the uh, folks in your marketplace. Literally, this person was screwing the buyers and sellers in the marketplace. You should pursue some legal uh, options. I know that's hard to say, but when somebody steals or does something like this, the actual uh, way to take the behavior lightly is to let them resign. Um, you want to take legal action. That's what they should have done here. They should have pursued it with the authorities. Th there might not be anything you can pursue. I don't know if this is exactly legal because. OpenSea and other folks are claiming these are not security. So if it's not a security, then how is it exactly insider trading? They just bought a, it'd be like buying a comic book that you knew was going to be promoted by Marvel Comics and then holding it. The problem is these NFTs are accelerating in cost on the first day. So this is more like that story we had of the Nike vice president. And she was, uh, her son was buying all the you know, shoe drops before they came out. This is more along that. So more along that line. Um, OpenSea's response timeline, they found out in quotes about the employee actions on Tuesday, forced their resignation on Wednesday and announced they will potentially pursue legal action and changing their anti front running control. So maybe they will pursue it. I give their response here like a six. Um, they didn't mention uh, investigating all other employees and checking to see if anybody else had done this. I bet you somebody else, I would say dollars to donuts, 60, 70% chance somebody else in the company's done this, or somebody else's family members have done this. So while this person got caught, you know, somebody could have just told their family member, their cousin, their friend from college, hey, go buy a bunch of these for me. They're going to be huge. And we'll flip them two days later and chop the money up. So um, there's probably some other stuff that's going on here. That's my best guess that I'm saying guess as well. Now, in more NFT news, NFTs have captured people's imagination because people will buy them and they're basically worthless digital assets. The only value they have is the value that is bestowed upon them by collectors. 
So there's no intrinsic value in any of these, uh, essentially. Um, maybe somebody can tell me if there is one that comes with rights to borrow, uh, you know, a boat or something, or, you know, people are selling NFTs for time on private jets or, you know, usage of uh, an actual real world private club. I'm not sure if they do. Um, so in more NFT news, Jay-Z sued Damon Dash, his co-founder at Rockefeller Records over auctioning off copyright to Jay-Z's debut album as an NFT. So this is going to get really complicated. So in June, Jay-Z's Rockefeller Records sued its co-founder, Dame Dash, after hearing about Dash's plans to auction off his stake in the company as an NFT. Now, why would be, if he has a stake in the company, does that stake in the company come with uh, residuals to that album? Is there any value to it? Do you have a voting mechanism? Is this company active? And are these rights active? Oh, who knows? In July, Dame Dash launched an auction with a starting bid of $10 million for his one-third share of Rockefeller, his one-third share of Reasonable Doubt, and a commemorative NFT representing the certificate of ownership. This is the NFT. It looks terrible. Um, and it says, it's the rock. It's the diamond. You get the idea. Uh, quote from the website, Damon Dash is auctioning his one-third interest in Rockefeller Inc., which owns Reasonable Doubt, Jay-Z's first album. I, I don't know what it owns. Does it own all the rights to it? Can you then sell the songs on Reasonable Doubt? to a movie um, and get one third of the fees. So if somebody wants to use it in a TV show, i.e. licensing, or have those rights been sold, the highest bidder will also receive the commemorative NFT. It's the rock representing certificate of ownership. The Bloomberg article explains the convoluted legal argument as quote, Rockefeller says that while Dash holds a one third stake in the company, it owns the album itself. And he has new legal right to sell the NFT. Essentially, Rockefeller is saying Dash has no right to mint a stake in the record company or the album itself as an NFT and sell it. And uh, I'll just add here, like, I think they're trying to screw the person who's buying it. Like, what are they actually buying? You're buying yourself into a lawsuit? Um, seems pretty dumb to me. Uh, Dash was blocked from selling rights to the album and agreed to wait until the lawsuit was resolved before continuing the auction, according to Bloomberg. Uh, the Bloomberg article quoted Dash's lawyer who stated that, quote, Dash is just trying to assign the rights to future royalties He's entitled to as one third owner Rockefeller, as artists have done for a long time. So I guess you are getting the rights to future royalties. You get all of them. You get them up until the price you paid for it, ten million, and then you split them. I don't know what the contract here is. Lawsuits ongoing. So Dash's NFT auction has been put on hold. Um, so, I mean, he's talking about selling his stake, which would be securities, as a, an NFT, and we're having this discussion: are NFTs securities? Well, this one is specifically designed to act like uh, and represent a security. So this one for sure is a security. Are other ones a security or are they a trading card that just happens to uh, accumulate a lot of value um, to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Reasonable Doubt, his de debut album, Jay-Z sold his own NFT via Sotheby's for 138K. Uh, on Sotheby's website, it notes the NFT was on sale from June 25th to July 2nd with a starting bid of 1000 and it's a slightly better looking um, uh, NFT, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, it, this is the Wild West NFTs. Basically, people are looking at them and saying, this is a way for me to get somebody with a bunch of crypto money to give me that crypto money, and I give them back a JPEG that really has, you know, probably little to no value. And if it acts like a security, and, uh, you know, I guess it's a security, it's, it's really hard to tell in these cases. Um, because these are something new. They're not exactly securities, but if people are buying them because they increase in value, 
and you're selling collections of them, and you have marketplaces. I can see people making an argument they are. Um, and they can obviously be used for all kinds of um, money laundering and a washing of money that was obtained illegally. So, you know, these are this is a really um, interesting, dangerous, weird thing that has occurred. So if you're into this NFT space and you've made a ton of money, suggest doing a little profit taking, have fun out there. Um, but if it's 99% of your net worth and you can buy a house with half the money um, or pay off your college debt, that's never a bad thing to do. I wish you luck. Be careful out there. Have fun. You know, consider it like gambling. When you are trying to grow a startup fast, hiring engineers will slow you down like nothing else. Don't I know it? So many companies I invest in are telling me they can't get their next version out because they don't have a great engineer. Well, Lemon.io will find you a perfect candidate in just 48 hours. It's a marketplace of engineers from Europe, and they test and interview every developer to eliminate the risk of a failed project. Lemon.io is the perfect solution if you are a technical co-founder and you need to delegate some of your important tasks, or you have a project that needs specific technology and you don't have that skill on your team yet, or you are just growing so fast that you need to add more developers and get more done faster. They'll match you with a candidate within 48 hours, and if it doesn't work out, they'll replace the developer right away. So here is your CTA, the old call to action. If you could use a full-time or even part-time developer to run your projects faster, go to lemon.io slash twist. Once again, lemon, L-E-M-O-N dot I-O slash twist. And you'll receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of work with that amazing developer. Well done, Lemon. Okay, check it out, everybody. Lemon.io slash twist. All right, really excited to have our next guest on the program. His name is Quinn Slack. His company is Sourcegraph. They've been on fire. What do they do? They're basically Google for code. What does that mean? If you're a developer and you're sitting there and you're coding and you need some ideas of how to get your job done, well, it would be great if you could search a Google-like repository for solutions. Well, he built that, and over the last seven years, it's turned out to be a huge business. Uh, in the past year, 800,000 developers have used the product, so he's going to blow past a million soon. Uh, he's raised a bunch of money, and uh, we're going to talk today about the developer class and what he's building over at Sourcegraph. Welcome to the program, Quinn Slack. Thank you. It's great to be here. So when you see the app and the SaaS software company Slack emerge and somebody in your team says, hey, Quinn, we should use Slack. And uh, they install Slack at your company. And then everybody's like, hey, Quinn, are you on Slack? Is Quinn Slack on Slack? I mean, what happens? Is that? Yeah, you remember having the last name Slack and yeah. having Slack.org, it, it feels weird. But yeah. I think to be fair, Stuart Butterfield should change his name to Stuart Sourcegraph. So absolutely like make that happen. Fair play, <laughs> fair play. Uh, I just want to make sure people understand your name is Slack. Your last name is Slack. Do people call, do, prior to Slack existing as a SaaS product, did people refer to you as Slack? Like people call me Calacanis? No, um, I was never that cool. I love coding and I've always loved coding. And so I was never a get called by the last name person, but that's okay. It. All right. So uh, you founded Sourcegraph in 2013. What was the origin story here? Like, was there not an, an, a place to search for code back then? Do people use GitHub to do that? Or did it not exist? Or was it just not well done? No, there wasn't. The amount of code in the world is growing exponentially. And it sounds crazy. But 
we had to go build it for every company out there. And now we have some of the world's best engineering teams using Sourcegraph. Three out of five of the Fang companies and our other customers are Uber, which I know you're yeah. involved in, and Plaid, Atlassian, GE. And one stat that I really love is there's a billion people in the world that are using products that are built by people using Sourcegraph. So oh, wow. before we came along, there wasn't any kind of way to have universal code search across all of the code. And we built it. Now, where do you get all this code from? Because people for a long time were very proprietary and secretive about their code. They didn't want to let that out. That was considered a competitive advantage. Open source obviously came out. And that led a revolution that is is driving a lot of, you know, the massive innovation we see in the economy today. Um, how do you get code into your Google of code? So picture yourself as a developer that works at a very large company with, say, thousands of developers with decades of legacy code. There's so much code in that company. And you as a developer have a job, which is to build new things. But most of the job is reading and understanding and maintaining code. It's not writing code. That's about 5% of the job. And so all the code in your company, that is the primary thing that you use Sourcegraph to understand and fix and reuse. There's also a ton of code out there in public, all of these open source components that companies are using more and more. And that's a thriving ecosystem. But first, we set out to solve the problem for a company's own internal code. Got it. So it's internal searching of that code base. And then they use other tools to document it and etc. Um, how do you make money from this? It's per seat. So developers use Sourcegraph many times a day in the same way that people use Google many times a day for everyday questions. For developers, you know, maybe 10 times a day. And if they are using Sourcegraph inside of a company, then we get paid. And so it's nicely aligned. And it's an organic viral product that spreads, again, much in the same way that Google spread. Google, you heard or about Slack. it from a, yeah. yeah, Slack as well. It's free for up to 10 users. Is that correct? And then when you hit your yeah. 10th developer, you start paying, what do you pay per seat? On uh, it depends on what features and components you're using. It's yeah. a tiny fraction of what companies are paying to hire and retain and keep their developers happy. And when you look at how important it is for every company to be building more software, to be staying ahead of the competition, to be innovating. Because we consumers, we demand so much better software each year. That's an imperative. And so you're going to win if you can innovate. You're going to lose if you can't. So every company knows they need to be a software company. And if you can give them something that truly helps their developers move more quickly, ship more products, grow revenue, that's the holy grail. And that's something that we are able to do. Uh, and the company's grown rapidly, but it was a little bit of a slow start. Uh, you spent maybe a couple of years building this out and, and didn't have much traction from what I understand. Yeah, there was a lot of work going into it. So let me give it the backstory. I have been a coder all my life, and I've seen what it's like to work on really big code bases. I was working on open source projects. I also was working with my Sourcegraph co-founder at Palantir before this, and we were working inside of two really large banks, JP Morgan and Bank of America. And we felt the pain of being devs in an organization with a ton of code and to find code that we could reuse or to understand how this works or to fix a bug. A lot of times we'd have to go tap someone on the shoulder. We'd have to go on SharePoint. So many times we had to fly to meet another person to have an in-person meeting with them just to learn how this piece of code works. 
Now, if we could have read the code or found the code, then that would have taken instead of $10,000 in a week, maybe three to five minutes. And so we felt that pain. It is so hard to make progress as a developer. And then, you know, you zoom out and all these companies that have this imperative to write more software, well, it feels like, wow, we are not able to ship enough new products and look at all these other companies out innovating us. It all comes back to their developers are finding it so hard to work in this exponentially growing amount of code and complexity. So we had felt the pain, but there's another thing that we saw and my co-founder had been at Google before. Now, Google also has a ton of code, tens of thousands of developers every single day adding more code, but they have this secret weapon. They have this internal Google for code, and they even had that you know, more than 10 years ago. And so every Google developer is constantly using their internal Google for code to find existing code to reuse, to fix problems, to onboard, to understand code. And if you quit Google, a lot of times the thing you miss most is not the free sushi or the foosball. It's this internal code search, this internal Google for code. So Google.com, I think, is there. Like, well, that uh, was an external version, which was completely different. This right. is an internal secret weapon that Got Google it. doesn't want to give other companies because they want to have the edge. So 300 bucks a year for the software, 25 bucks a seat. I'm just seeing a Google result is ballpark. Is that about right? Uh, it depends on what features you're using. On average? It's, you know... It's, you know, something between, uh, basically, it's less than 1% of what you're going to pay a developer in a year. Developers cost 125, 150k, 1% would be 1500. That would be uh, like yeah. 100 bucks a month. So it's, yeah. it's not cheap 150 bucks a month, but you get a lot of value out of it. Because if you save, but uh, one, one week a year would be 2%. So if you save just three days of a developer's time, banging their head against the wall pays for itself. Yeah, that's right. And here's a scenario. It's so Why, easy. Can I ask for, you a question about this? Why are you so secret about the pricing? Why are SaaS companies secret about price? I noticed on your website, while we're talking about this, there's no pricing on the website. Is it that people consider it a competitive advantage? I know this has always been frustrating for people. In fact, I invested in a company called Capiche.com that was going and asking all the people who own SaaS software how much they pay and then putting it up there so that people could negotiate harder against uh you know, SaaS companies who don't put their pricing on it. Why, why do you choose to not have like transparent pricing on the website? I'm curious. Yeah, well, I'll tell you why. And we are a very transparent company. So, you know, you can look in our handbook, you can see, you can look in our yeah. code. I'm just talking specifically about pricing. Yeah. Yeah. So developers are our audience. And if you look at the state of tooling available to developers, a lot of people think, wow, they must be using these amazing super high-tech minority report-like interfaces because they're building the future. But no, the state of tools that developers use is very, very poor. And you look at that compared to what a trader in finance would have, Bloomberg, where that's tens of thousands of dollars per year. You don't see that for developers, even though that's what developers need to be much happier and much higher velocity. And so from this background, it's really easy to get started with source graph. You can what does that you know, have to do the with base. the pricing though? <laughs> this well, doesn't answer my question about pricing. I'm asking you very specifically. Why do companies who are SaaS not just disclose the pricing? Because the price that it takes to get started is often uh, a lot lower than the price once it's rolled out to a whole company and the CTO and CIO and so many internal business processes are dependent on it. And if you show the price to get started, 
then those people are going to be anchored. And if you show the price that is once it's uh, delivering tremendous enterprise value, then the devs are going to say, that's way more than, you know, I am comfortable with. And uh, this is a, a market failure. This is interesting. See, that's the reason why I asked you the question three times, two or three times is because I knew there was an answer. So there is a sticker shock that occurs in SaaS. I'll take this outside of SourceGraph because this is an issue I see across a lot of SaaS products. And it's very frustrating to consumers. But the reason SaaS companies do it, this makes total sense to me, is that the sticker shock of, oh, I've got a thousand developers, I'm gonna pay 1500. Why would I pay a million five for this? We could build it internal. That sticker shock that somebody might have, oh, have a thousand developers is 1500. It's $1.5 million a year. You kind of have to have a discussion with them of why that's actually worth it. And that they would have to put 50 developers on this project, which would cost them $10 million a year to build it. And they could just have it right now for 15% of that cost. But that's not yeah. a conversation people can have with a web page. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting. It's a very interesting observation uh, or realization. I was always wondering what it is, but that's if you get them on the phone and they see it. But some people do. Had, when people say that to you, hey, why should I pay a million bucks a year? You have people who are paying seven figures a year for this, I take it? Yeah. Don't you wish you could hire a ringer to help scale your startup and get your marketing tight? But with Marketer Hire, now you can. Marketer Hire gives you access to expert freelancers on demand with no long-term contracts or risk. You can hire experienced specialists across the most valuable marketing disciplines. Think paid social, paid search, growth, SEO content, and even fractional CMOs, chief marketing officers. Again, there's no long-term contract. And you can cancel at any time. If it's your first time working with freelance talent, you'll start with a no-risk trial. You only hire what you need so you can stay on budget with hourly, part-time, and full-time agreements. Every freelancer on market or hire goes through a rigorous vetting process with their industry experts and freelancers from market or hire have been hired by over 1500 companies, including top brands like Netflix, Allbirds and Lambda School, which we're a little investor in. So get $500 off your first hire. That's pretty generous at marketerhire.com slash twist. Again, marketerhire.com slash twist for $500 off. You can also get started with a consultation call where they'll advise you on who to hire based on your needs and goals. That's five hundred. One, two, three, four, five hundred. Right now, marketerhire.com slash twist. M-A-R-K-E-T-E-R. Hire.com slash twist. For those folks, when they say to you, why don't we just build this ourselves? How do you and your sales team overcome that challenge? Yeah, so first, let me talk about how we get to that level of investment from a customer, and then Got talk it. about why they're still using SourceGraph. We get to that level where we started at a fraction of a million dollars. Mm. And a lot of devs were using it. A lot of times, say a company has 2000 engineers, the company thinks, well, this is a brand new thing. We've never seen code search before. We don't know how many people will use it. Let's start with 200 users, 10% of our dev team. We know we've seen this play over and over again, that it's going to spread virally, but we don't want to create any barriers. And so we're upfront about that. And fine, yeah, start with 200. But then it grows, it spreads and starts to get to the point where 2000 devs are using it. And then they're starting to use it not just to find code to onboard to understand code, but also to push out automated fixes. And they're getting so much more value out of it. And just like I said about those Google devs that when they quit Google, they miss this code search tool so much. 
devs can't live without code search. They can't live without source graph. So it's this organic growth. And we have proven so much of the value. And the person who's making the decision can ask any single developer on the team. And they're going to say, you can never, ever, ever take this away from me. So that's how we get to that level. And we like proving ourselves because we think we can do it. And so if we were to share that price to someone to whom we haven't proven ourselves, it's going to be a weird conversation. And also, that's not what we charge before, you know, it's been proven out to a whole team. Right. So it might be 25 bucks a month, or you just come up with some flat rate or whatever. Um, the Chrome extension seems to be in the core of all this people are working in Chrome all day, and they're very comfortable with that. But you have other people building Chrome extensions to work with the product. Is that correct? The main part of SourceGraph is the web based code search that looks like Google, you are, you pull up SourceGraph for your company, and there's a big search box. And that's where you type in what you're looking for, or what you're trying to learn. And that's the core. The Chrome extension is a great way for SourceGraph to be integrated into some of the other tools that your team uses, like GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, and so on. But the core of it is this uh, web application for code search, again, just like Google. Right. But then I, I saw on your site, people were creating like, or I don't know if these are people who work with the company, but you have other Chrome extensions that people build or it's sort of like an open source community. Is that correct? Or no? They're not Chrome no, they're extensions. They're actually SourceGraph extensions. Ah. So, you know, here's an example of that. Uh, if you are a developer, you get a page at 3am in the middle of the night and your site is down. You want a single pane of glass when you're looking through the code to help you figure out where the issue is so you can get the site back up. And with SourceGraph extensions, you can show inside of a customer, for example, this code is deployed here, here's who last touched it, here are all the error logs, and it lets you put any kind of context right on the code so that everyone can see it, whether you just joined yesterday or mm. you've been at the company for 10 years. Got it. Uh, how do you deal with competitors in a space like this and open source competitors as well? I know anytime somebody builds a big company like this, and they get Sequoia and these legendary investors, and you pass that billion dollar valuation, everybody's eyes are all of a sudden going to be on it. Um, are, do you have a lot of me too? And, uh, you know, also ran companies now? And do you have face competition from open source? And, and, and how do you contend with that? I know a lot of people are skeptical about this, but we don't face right now, traditional commercial competition. There are some open source code search tools, but the primary challenge we face is most devs and most companies have never used code search. Ah. And we see this growing so quickly, but we are the ones educating. Sometimes mm. we wish that more people were talking about code search, that there are more code search tools in the market. And I'm sure that there will be. But the key thing for us is we are universal. So you take most companies have code in so many different languages scattered across a lot of different systems, GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, legacy code. We look across all of those. And a lot of the usual suspects you might imagine to be competitors, for example, GitHub, or, you know, Google or Amazon, people wouldn't trust them to be vendor independent. GitHub is going to mm -hmm. make, I think in the future, better code search for your code on GitHub. But if you're the, the company that has code scattered across seven different places, and you've acquired other companies with code elsewhere, you need search across all of them because you need to be able to certify, yes, I fixed this problem everywhere, not just mm. in this tiny little fraction. So that's why it's so important that we are universal with respect to competition. Uh, companies are all going, obviously, 100% virtual remote work, work from home, uh, because of the pandemic. Some are trying to get people to come back, seems unlikely. Developers are the easiest group. I think to manage remotely because 
you see their commits and and uh, they're in high demand so they can work from home if they want to or find a job pretty easily. I wonder if you're seeing in the data or anecdotally with your partners and as a developer, um, more uh, developers internationally working for US companies because of this work from home movement where companies like Google and Apple and Facebook, which demanded people come to offices, now are not doing that. And how is that changing the industry as a whole now that work from home is the standard, not, you know, for, you know, 37 signals and, you know, uh, Matt Mullenweg at WordPress and automatic, like, now everybody's doing it. It's not just 37 signals and, and automatic. Yeah. Well, we are an all remote company ourselves. And we went all remote about a month and a half before the pandemic started. So we have felt this and what we saw is you saw devs, it six weeks before February, you saw it like an early in December, that this was going to be a work from home type situation. Wow. No, we decided totally independently with no foreknowledge oh, was to go all remote. Oh, wow. Ah, interesting. Wow. You must look like a visionary for making that decision six weeks before the pandemic. Well, wow. we were prepared. We had yeah. gotten all of the home desks and chairs yeah. and, and um, we knew what it was going to be like for companies that were thrust into that work from home, all remote situation. And it used to be if you were working with a bunch of other devs in an office, you had a question about code, go tap someone on the shoulder or you'd been to lunch with them last week and they mentioned something. You had so much context, it was so much easier. But now all of a sudden, you're working at home, you're completely isolated. How do you get answers to these questions? And yep. SourceGraph is a tremendous There's no, there's no tap way. on the shoulder, right? Yeah, you can't right. go walk to lunch and say, hey, how do I find this out? So that that uh, is an incredible wind at yourselves. What has the pandemic been like? You're like the uh, ultimate example of a company other than, say, Zoom and Slack. That would be massive wind in the sales. Did how much did you grow in 2020 and 2021 versus pre-pandemic on like a percentage basis? What was the velocity change? I think it coincided with us getting, uh, since we started in 2013 to the end of 2019, that's when we finally built the product that was selling repeatedly that a dev could bring into their company and it just would spread and work. And so those two things did coincide, but we've been growing really quickly. So, you know, more than 4X year over year, tremendous customer retention. year over year. Wow. Four times as many customers one year to the next or revenue, something yeah. in there or both. That's extraordinary. What have you learned as a CEO running a company that's growing 4x? Like, what didn't you anticipate that you've had to like add to your skill set as the founder CEO? Well, it's been pretty crazy. We grew from around 30 people in January of 2020 to now 210 people. <sighs> So I feel like my job, I think everyone's job here is changing all the time. And you added a person every other day, just so you know. I think the math is basically a new person joining yeah. your company every 48 hours. Yeah. You know, look, all these companies have so much code. The background problem that we're dealing with, big code and helping companies grapple with, that's getting worse and worse. And you have this pandemic, which has accelerated a lot of these trends and also made it so developers are isolated and need more help. You have all these trends that are going in our favor. And then what's going to happen for many decades to come is the number of software developers is going to be growing at 9 to 10% year over year. So it's this long-term secular trend that is both creating the problem that we solve and you know making such a big opportunity for us. And I just want to get back to that because all these devs writing code, all that code still exists. It's piling up like a landfill. 
And 10 years ago, when Mark Andreessen said, soccer is eating the world, well, now every company is drowning in it. And there's yeah. more code written in the last few years than in the entire history before that. So this problem is just getting worse and worse. And we call that technical debt in the industry. If you're not documenting yeah. your code, if it's not clean, if people don't understand it, my Lord, that that's just like a, a really bad foundation, you know, on a skyscraper. Yeah. Perhaps a, um, perhaps a callous uh, metaphor on my part, given what's happening with the Millennium Tower. I don't know if you saw that in San Francisco, but they tried to fix it and it sunk faster. I yeah. mean, what is going on in the world that we, those idiots didn't build pylons and they built on sand and unbelievable. Uh, I'm not asking you to officially comment on that. I'm just going on a little bit of I'm a software idea. engineer, not a civil engineer. And I exactly. believe that what software engineers do is way, way worse and create way more tech debt. And I am one and I get it because there's such yeah. pressure to move quickly. I mean, that is yeah one of the big problems. Here's a really weird thing uh, that's occurring from the work from home movement. Developers are uh, talking about this on Reddit and Hacker News. Um, they do. They take two jobs. And I think the New York Times even got to this story later. Um, and then they just do like uh, a bingo kind of thing where they try to Jenga their schedules <laughs> and they deliver code. If you're an elite developer and you deliver your code perfectly to two different companies and they are pleased with you and you're in the top 10%, is this moral, unethical, elite, awesome? How do you think about that? I think you need to be transparent about what is going on here on both sides. I think companies would love to get to the point where there was a clear contract and it was entirely measurable. I don't think it's ever going to get to that point. But on the dev side, I think this highlights that a really talented developer is adding way more value to their company than that developer can capture. And that is a problem slash opportunity as well. If you're one of your top five developers, at Sourcegraph was working two jobs and somebody ratted them out, what would you do? Would you fire them <laughs> or just double their salary? <laughs> I have not thought about this. That's why I'm asking yeah, you because it makes it super interesting <laughs> for your, your answer. <laughs> if they were contributing, then I would think that's a genius move. And I think it's important to be transparent in there. So I wish that they would have told us yeah. because that insight about how they are so productive in two different places at once, we could learn so much from and we're yeah. unique in that we are all about increasing dev velocity. And most companies probably wouldn't celebrate that and say, Oh, what can we learn about that? But uh, I would, I would find that fascinating, personally. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a snap promotion for me. <laughs> it's like, well, we obviously did not challenge you enough, manage you properly. Let's have I'm, I'm taking that person to a Warriors game and sitting courtside with them and, and figuring out exactly why they're not the co-founder of the yeah. company. I mean, my God, you have to be brilliant. Now, the one I didn't like was somebody was said they were, they claimed, and you know, who knows? These are all like anonymous discussions, but one of them that somebody highlighted for me, they claimed they were outsourcing to a team in, you know, wherever. Uh, and then they were just cleaning up the code and then publishing it. And I was like, that's also clever, but that feels just insane and nuts. Don't do that. Um, very strange. Yeah. Well, uh, a lot of developers have side projects in open source that they do, and mm. it's a great way to learn. So I get it. What, what do you think uh, you, 
it's obvious what the gains are from working from home. People are happier. You remove commutes. They get to spend time with their families if they have them or on their hobbies uh, or both. I don't know if that's actually possible. I have three kids. I'm not sure if you can have hobbies when you have kids. But um, what is lost? And then how are you thinking about that? Because based on what you told me, 90% of your company has never met you and or been in an office space with you. What does that do for culture? Does it matter? Are we overthinking? The value of being in a room or is something actually lost and how do you think about the culture at your company which is a company that let's face it 90 percent of the people working there have never been to the source graph office if there even is one anymore yeah well all remote today during a pandemic is totally different from all remote outside of a pand- pandemic how so what was a big reason in us going all remote was i felt a closer connection to some of our team members in europe who i traveled to and spent quality time with, went around the city, went to the Berlin Zoo, really got to know them. I felt closer to them than some people in the office who I saw Mm. next to the water cooler Diet Coke fridge. And so that quality time can build strong bonds. The problem is we're in a pandemic now, and it's much harder to travel and build that quality time. So once the pandemic subsides more, hopefully, all remote is this best of both worlds, the quality time plus the the focus and the choice on how you live your life and where you want to live. But I also think something a lot of all remote companies are going to need to grapple with is we're in this honeymoon period where all remote is strictly better than a company that's temporarily remote and uncertain about when they're going back. But soon, we're going to be competing with companies that are back in the office. And there are a lot of great things about being in an office. So we all remote companies are going to have to compete. But hey, I love that. Companies competing to make better places for devs to work. That's great. I mean, the great news for you is if people in your company are like, we really need to have an office. I want that experience. You'd be like, great. We now have an office in London or Berlin. Yeah. And the seven of you can go create an office. And if you want to invite people to come work here, you can have them join the office and do whatever the heck you want. And yeah, viva la difference, right? I mean, I think, you know, Netflix uh, I, I heard Reed Hastings say like, uh, yeah, no, we're adults. We're all coming back to work. Forget it. It's not happening. You don't get to stay home. Apple took the same position. And man, they flipped. They flipped. They yeah. they know they're not going to retain talent. I mean, it's it, that's the bottom line, right? You're seeing that back channel as well, where people are like, yeah, if you force me to come back to an office, my resume's out. I'm done. Yeah. It feels like people want to be trusted to work in the way that they best work. And yeah. trust is so important. And if someone feels like they're not trusted, then I can understand why they feel that way. I think you make a very good point, though, about quality time versus like this performative, like being in the same space time. Yeah, don't the times- go all the way across the world and hunch over in a co-working space on your laptop and not talk to your colleague next to you. Go and hang out with them. Clear your calendar. Have fun. That, those yeah. bonds are so important. I, the the great bond making trips we had was you know when we did our Australia launch festival I took some of the team members scuba diving you know on the Great Barrier Reef I took then two years or a year or two later we went to Hamilton Island and went to the Whitsundays the most beautiful beach rated in the world went wave running I mean it was sick I mean yeah. it was just totally sick and those are the bonds that last and those are the memories because I don't know do you have kids yet two kids yeah so you know like. There's a real big difference between like being with them on your phone at the beach or being swimming with them in the ocean or playing chess with them versus watching a movie with them. When you're engaged with them, my lord, you know, that is the memory. When you the the ski trip, 
the you know yeah. times you were playing chess, whatever, not when you're, I don't know, all on your iPads or whatever. And uh, I think that's, I think you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm so excited to have all these team members I haven't met and just go on vacation and have a retreat with them and do fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I hope this thing ends soon. Uh, all right, listen, congratulations, everybody go check out SourceGraph. You're hiring. We know that you're hiring a person every other day. Uh, what are you looking for? And what is it like to work there? Why should somebody come work at SourceGraph? Versus we, Google? If you want to see what it's like to be on our team, go read the SourceGraph handbook. It's how we work and it's completely public because we're a very transparent company. So we are looking for people that love code or love the idea of way more companies in the world, way more people in the world building technology, whether that's a developer, a designer in sales and marketing. We're all about this idea of in the future that everyone's going to be coding and we want to prepare the world for that moment. Dude, this is brilliant. I am totally going to steal this idea. Everybody go right now. It's amazing how the last five minutes of these interviews, something amazing drops. It happens like every time. If you can only listen to like 10 minutes of an interview on this week in service, just go to the last 10 minutes. About.sourcegraph.com slash handbook. About.sourcegraph.com slash handbook. Company, all remote, asynchronous communication, strategy goals, team, org chart, teammates, career CEO, communication, content highlights, customer first, and then each department. So if you're in the marketing department, product marketing, content tools, editorial, creating and editing blog posts, blog hackathon, demand gen. I mean, literally, you just gave the entire employee experience handbook to the world. So why would you ever read a job description when you just go to this and see the goals of the company and the strategy? Oh, my God, dude, this is brilliant. Where'd you get this idea from? This is a level of transparency I've never seen. Or, I mean, I've we were seen inspired some. by GitLab here. GitLab is also an all remote, ah. very transparent company. And you so need this, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes ah. people have sent me a link and they've said, Quinn, oh no, I think you accidentally made all of this public. It's happened like four or five times. But we're really transparent. Look, it's such an important decision when you go join a company. We want people to know what they're getting into. And we feel like it's a great place to be. And so we, we're pretty proud of that. This is such a great idea. Is this something that's just sweeping through the uh, developer communities? Not as much as I think it should be. So anyone can go and copy our handbook. If you're I'm starting a new company, yeah. go fork it. I'm looking at GitLabs and I'm looking at yours. How many other companies have done this? Have you ever seen anybody else do this? There are a few. Ah, this is such a killer idea. Hey, uh, producers, let's do a segment on this uh, and, and let's let's bring this to our founders. I've never seen any of my companies do this. What a great idea this is. All right, listen, continued success. Thanks for being like super honest and engaging as a guest, Quinn. Uh, Thank you. Come back. Come, you're, you're a good guest. Let's uh, have you come back in a year and get an update from you, okay? Would that be all right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Everybody go, uh, if you're a developer and, or marketer and you want to work at a rocket ship, company's taking off. And if you look at your investors, my Lord, it's like a, it's a bestie parade. You got Kraft, my bestie, David Sachs. You got Sequoia, my bestie's over there. I mean, what a great group. Oh, Valor, Antonio Gracias. Whoa, look at all these. Redpoint, a lot of good folks. Uh, yeah, really impressive. But you worked at Palantir, right? Why are people so scared? Of, should people be scared of Palantir? Is that, what is going on over there? I love the people at Palantir. I was on the commercial side with my co-founder, Beyond. We, the reason why is... I got the security clearance paperwork. I'm like, oh, that's a lot of government forms to fill out. And I want to be put on the most intense team. So 
you know, with this tiny team that's starting to work on the JP Morgan Bank of America engagement. So I don't know a lot about, you know, Palantir. I know that there's a lot of great people there. And it gave me this opportunity to see what it's like to write code inside of massive banks. So you were there working on something very narrow. So you don't they actually silo all those projects because they're all I don't I don't know how much they silo on the government side. My uh, involvement was on the commercial side with banks and uh, organizations like that. Should people be scared of that company? Like people seem nervous about what Palantir is doing. I I don't know. You're the pundit. I'm just a <laughs> lowly CEO just trying <laughs> to make it so everyone can code. But you're being uh, magnanimous. Or I tried at least, just so the audience knows, I tried. I tried to get some inside information on Palantir. I'm trying to have the I've been trying to have the Palantir founder on for a while, but like they don't like to talk about what they're doing but i guess maybe that's part of the appeal all right listen yeah. continued success thanks for coming on the pod we'll see you next time bye bye <laughs>